0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Michigan State University's Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast dedicated to the transformative power of our faculty research and pedagogy here at Michigan State. In each episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor, we offer an inside perspective on the research, teaching, and scholarship that are enriching the ways we think and act in a complex, interconnected world. I'm your host, Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters here at Michigan State University. And in the studio today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Professor Zach Kaiser, Assistant Professor of Graphic Design in the Department of Art, Art, History, and Design. Welcome, Zach.
1: Thanks, Dean Long. I'm happy to be here.
0: It's great to have you. I've been, <laughs> been looking forward to this conversation. So tell me a little bit about the, the work that you've been doing, the, the creative activity that you're doing, which really scan, uh, spans you know, a, a wide variety of things.
1: Yeah. Um, so most of my work involves in some way looking at how design, particularly graphic design and user experience design, sort of shapes the contours of what we can perceive in our lives. And in doing so, um, it also shapes, therefore, how we believe that we can participate in the world. And so my work is an endeavor to examine that and also to critique it and to open up spaces for possibility. Um, in ways that maybe we didn't imagine before.
0: What got you into design? I mean, it, you know, one of the things that I'm struck by the way you've just articulated that is the the degree to which design saturates our lives in, in such basic ways. So
1: when I was in seventh grade, um, I started drawing shoes. Mm. I had always like drawn when I was a kid and I started drawing shoes. And um, when I started, uh, middle school, I actually got a job stocking shoes at a New Balance shoe store. And basically ever since then, I I had been like obsessed with, um, fashion and style. And I had thought about going to school for industrial design, but I was like terrified to leave my um, parents' home, the nest. <laughs> and, uh, so I stayed in Madison, um, and at UW Madison, we didn't have a industrial design program. So I studied graphic design and, uh, I just, you know, you're right, we're, we're, like, we're so saturated with design and it kind of, but in a lot of ways it disappears too. And I think that's part of the point of my work is that I try to find the spaces where it disappears even though it's there and to articulate those spaces and to maybe suggest that things could be otherwise mm-hmm. when we don't perceive it. Yeah.
0: One of the um, things that you and I have talked a lot about is... Um, the the way in which metrics play a role in the in the modern Academy in the contemporary Academy and <laughs> the neoliberal Academy that we inhabit so m- maybe I mean and m- maybe we could talk about that um, video that you that you have and imagine a future uh, in which this uh, well maybe you could describe it our program I sure. mean it's just you know watching the video is it's an, it's a great way to really think about the the dangers endemic to to um, a uh, reification of quantification on our ways of uh, thinking about our scholarly lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, <laughs> I was actually thinking about this uh, as I was writing my tenure narrative.
0: <laughs> Excellent. I, I hear that you've uh, submitted that. No. I have. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Congratulations. Thanks.
1: Um, so there's a there's a great book called Evil Media by Matthew Fuller and Andrew Goffey. And In it, they talk about this thing called gray media, and what they say is that gray media um, disappears into the backgrounds of our lives. They talk about it including things like, you know, um, intranet, like company intranet software and sort of these things that look gray, super boring, super drab. But by gray, they also mean they're not black boxes, but they're not truly sort of knowable either. It's a great term. And I realized that the thing that we fill out every year, the faculty activity information system, a.k.a. Mm. F.A.I.S., is an excellent example of gray media. It seems to just sort of exist. It's like a, you know, it's very boring. It doesn't seem to really mean very much. It's not colorful. It's not fun. Um, So it kind of recedes into the background. And the way it shapes our ideas about what it means to participate in a learning community also sort of then seeps into the background. And our program, which is a video basically about the future of what it's like to be a faculty member, um, seeks to kind of make that gray media a little bit less gray and sort of show it and sort of um, bring some of its ideologies to the surface. And so in our program, um, which is a short film that I produced, there's a stock ticker outside of each faculty member's office and it basically shows your metrics according to something along the lines of academic analytics or um, other companies like Simitive. And uh, that project then evolved into a sort of broader dystopian fiction uh, under the name of Scholarstat, which is a, a fictional corporation that I created um, which recently ran an advertorial in Art Journal, mm. which is uh, the leading uh, publication on contemporary and modern art uh, published by the College Art Association. Um, and the marketing team of uh, ScholarStat also w- won an honorable mention in the Graphis Poster Design Annual. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome. Um, and so, Soon you're going to have investors. <laughs> exactly.
1: Well, I mean, in, to some degree, um, that's kind of the idea. But yeah. also, you know, I... I'm trying to sort of push this out to almost to myself in a way so that I can push back against it.
0: Well, that's one of the things I really appreciate about your work and and the way in which you're thinking about your own scholarly life and your pathway um, to leadership in your field because um, you are both sort of living it and reflecting on it at the same time through your art. So maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of how you – Um, imagine that playing out when in the the, our program world, you know, what happens to our relationships with one another?
1: So I think that um, despite the fact that I think Sherry Turkle has been accused of being maybe a a Luddite in the pejorative, which I don't necessarily take as a pejorative term. We'll just put that out there. Um, But I I think one of the things that she said in in, I took a class with her at MIT, and one of the things she said in class that that was really that really affected me was that she said we treat each other more like l- robots, and we treat robots more like each other. Mm-hmm. And I think that sort of is a very condensed version of I th- I'm starting to think of like what is happening, mm-hmm. and in a lot of ways, I think that we become instruments, maybe even not of each other, but of a sort of autonomous system that is designed for algorithms to work in the estimation of other algorithms. So like, you know, when we do research and publish it in a journal that has a high impact factor, for Mm -hmm. example, then we get recommendations of other journals with high impact factors to publish in. And all of a sudden, like, we're not worried about the work that we're doing or we're worried about how it's being assessed, and then we're listening to systems that are, it becomes a sort of like cycle, you know? Um, And so I I wonder, you know, I sort of imagine like a kind of fully autonomous academy at some point. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of, that's the scenario I've proposed. um, A couple times now, I I gave a talk at at Cambridge University um, last November, and the talk was about basically an academic oracle, Mm -hmm. and the idea that we might, um, have systems like our intranet software or something, you know, like if you log on to D2L or if you log on to, you know, some sort of variation of PeopleSoft or something, that um, we would have, you know, this thing that would be telling us what to research and where to publish and sort of guiding and shaping us, and we would just sort of have to prostrate at its at its computational feet in mm-hmm. some way, you know.
0: Yeah. We had a, a gathering of, we're doing a, a collaboration with Wayne State and with the University of Michigan around digital publishing. And we had a, a gathering at the University of Michigan earlier in the last week. And um, we were talking about research information systems, systems like the faculty activity information system, of the phase, the dreaded phase <laughs> that we have here. <laughs> yeah. And um, had an interesting conversation about the degree to which those technologies themselves have desires. Yeah, and how and how they shape those desires shape us, and how we can then also think intentionally about that and reshape their values and their desires so that they're more in line with the things we care most deeply about. I and that leads me, of course, to the conversations you and I've had a, a lot about um, the Humetrics initiative and the attempt to try to. Um, Reverse engineer the whole thinking about metrics from a values-based standpoint. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that, since on the one hand, you know, your critique is so poignant and sharp that it might, um, you know, throw one back into kind of a throw your hands up in the air and just say, well, it's all lost. We're we're just going to get sucked into this metricization of the Academy and, um, there's nothing we can do about it. So maybe you could talk a little bit about your sense of, you know, ways of redressing some of Mm -hmm. this.
1: Well, I think that, um, I mean, it may be a sort of, uh, I don't know, um, crass based superstructure argument here, but I, I think that, you know, to some extent when whatever metrics we create, still need to reflect in some way the the um, imperatives of the system within which they have to operate. So in some sense, I am, as we've talked about, skeptical of the project of creating any kind of metric system within the current situation in higher education. Um, now, that doesn't mean on the other hand, and this is um, an interesting point that uh, Gary Hall made at this conference in Cambridge, he basically said, and for those listeners who are out there uh, in the world right now, um, I uh, Gary Hall wrote a great book called The Uberfication of uh, the University, and um, I would highly recommend it. And one of the things that he said is, we can take advantage of the current systems of metrification And at the same time, use that as a cover to sort of do what we do as far as critique and Mm -hmm. as far as sort of innovative and maybe, um, you know, subversive uh, practices. You know, I I don't know. I'm I'm ambivalent about whether or not a truly sort of earnest uh, endeavor right now at this very moment can reshape the broader structure within which all of higher education is having to operate right now you know right. sort of state austerity and yeah. Yeah. Um, you know as, as I just found out about the um, you know plummeting number of like 18 year olds yeah oh yeah <laughs> I mean like yep. there's a lot to, there's a lot to worry about so I, I think yeah, that's sort of the long answer.
0: <laughs> well, no, I mean, oh, well, it's the beginning of the of the you know conversation about the the challenges that we're facing here in, in higher education, and and it goes right to the heart of the question of you know why go on really? Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is that <clears throat> higher education is really at a moment of um, a, a critical crisis yeah. where we have to decide whether we're going to. To, to use a term I've been thinking a lot about, measure up to the core values of what we've done and mm-hmm. what we've said we're about in higher education around, you know, transforming lives and, and bringing, um, you know, truth and justice into the world in specific, you know, concrete ways. Or... Whether we're going to, you know, be completely co-opted, yeah. and um, part of the challenge that I've had in thinking about all this, and I really am grateful for the provocations that your work has has, has given me. I mean, I'd love to talk more about uh, citation bomb in a minute, but, <laughs> but you know, to but for me, I mean, obviously, I'm sitting here as a dean, and I have you know, put my weight on the side of trying to transform the system from within it, recognizing that in so doing I'm co-opted by it oh, yeah. and compromised in that degree, and yet continue to sort of with eyes open as much as I can uh, and recognizing my own you know, limits of what I can understand and recognize, um, put my weight on the side of um, putting the values I care most deeply about into practice, and then trying to articulate ways of uh, identifying that those values are being practiced. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, one of the big values is critique. Right. You know, yeah. and, and that's one of the things that I uh, appreciate about, uh, you know, a work like Citation Bomb, for yeah. example.
1: Um, so it's really funny that you that you mentioned that because I've been thinking a lot about how critique gets commodified, and um, yeah. Bill Bill called me out on this. Uh, Bill Hart-Davidson? Yeah. yeah. He's, he's talked to me about this a number of times. And so Citation Bomb um, is a project that that emerged out of my work on this sort of our program video and the scholar stat thing. And, and basically it was my response to taking this gray media and making it a little more colorful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Citation Bomb is a piece of software that you can download. Um, and when a user downloads it, the idea is that uh, you're, you're an academic and um, you open the software. And if you're working on a paper, Uh, And you open the software, you enter the name of a paper that you've cited in your paper. And the software returns the 10 most related articles from Google Scholar and uh, outputs a Word document in four-point white text. And it encourages you to copy and paste that at the end of your references section of your article. And basically the idea behind it is that if the citation is somehow sort of a commodity today, and if we overflow the market, we devalue the commodity mm-hmm. and um, that's effectively the the aim of it um, interestingly so to you know to some degree, as I think we've talked about a couple times um, in our own conversations, it's certainly more symbolic than tactical as an intervention goes um, it's First of all, if we look at the history of bibliometrics, mm-hmm. the reliance on citations is something that was you know happening in the eighties and nineties, and, and not so much now. Uh, there's certainly more robust metrics, although it's it's certainly it's part of it. Um, and also, it would require you know like tens of thousands of people to actually use it <laughs> for <laughs> right. it to like actually <laughs> right. change Google Scholar and the way it works. Um, but interestingly, and maybe ironically, I just found out from a colleague on the board of College Art Association that it was the in the top 5 most viewed pages on the CAA website <laughs> or on the art, art journal website
0: right so, <laughs> so there you go <laughs> for whatever that's worth <laughs> right
1: so you know she was like this will be good for your for your tenure case. I was like, there's some sort of horrible irony in this. Well, (laughs) it's
0: going to be by its very definition that it's always going to mean your, I mean, the fact that you're submitting a dossier in the first place is is, um, ironic. And, you know, I think also emblematic of the kind of, you know, the way in which you and I both are caught up in this world that we both care so deeply about and also see as so limited and problematic. It's absolutely true.
1: It's absolutely true. And I've always wondered about, you know, like from the moment I came to MSU, I think I realized that my research, because I came from a teaching school, from graduate school, like the Massachusetts College of Art and Design, where I have my MFA from, is, is not a research school. And so I didn't know what it really meant to do your work um, in a place that was supportive of it. And from the time I came here, I realized that I wouldn't really be able to be anywhere else. Um, but it's also really funny, because I sometimes have this, like, fantasy of sort of, like, you know, huddling in a, you know, 1,000-person liberal arts school and just, like, kind of hiding. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you can't hide in those places anymore no, either. You know, no. like, every, everything's goes changing. goes all the way down. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, so one of the things that I appreciate about your work is the way that you've integrated your creative activity or research into your teaching. And, you know, we have this amazing, and you're... you're um, your work is, is has driven this it, along with that of many others. This new major, actually not so new anymore. Not We're so talking new, about yeah. five years really <laughs> going on. Um, experience architecture. So maybe you could talk a little bit about experience architecture, yeah. what it is, and how your, you know, your 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 teaching is integrated into your creative activity.
1: Absolutely. So the experience architecture major, it's very interesting. Um, XA as a as a field. Um, is related to user experience design and um, interface design, and it's got all sorts of terms. So XA is one of maybe many terms that kind of floats in this sea of ambiguity around the relationship between uh, technologies and society and how people interact with them. Um, So in our XA major, we prepare students to uh, sort of participate in the relationship between technology and society through the design of artifacts and the development of those artifacts that are probably in some way computational in nature that have some sort of interface element. Um, But they differ. You know, we're not just talking about app design. We're not just talking about web design. We're not talking about sort of traditional UX on its own, although that's certainly part of it. Um, And so the way that I think about my role within that curriculum is in part um, drawing on my experiences from industry mm. um, and teaching students how to make, but then also drawing on really what I've been doing since I came here, which is thinking very carefully about what I've made. And trying to understand what it means to, you know, as I talked about earlier, what it means to create something that then shapes how people perceive the world Mm -hmm. and therefore also how they participate in it. Um, And it has huge consequences. And so part of what I hope to help students study in this major is the consequences of their professional activity. That's really
0: important to me. Yeah, and the students that are coming out of that program are really thoughtful and um, they're able to, to, to see the various layers of experience. Yes,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I've been, uh, I've been thrilled. I'm, this semester I'm teaching the uh, Capstone course and um, we have a great time in that class. Uh, we're reading a few books together uh, this semester, one of which is Radical Technologies by Adam Greenfield and one of which is Algorithms of Oppression by Sophia Noble. Um, And it's been wonderful to take this last semester and have some really hard conversations that the students may not have the opportunity to have immediately when they go into industry um, as junior designers or as, you know, um, junior project managers or something like that, um, just to kind of open these spaces for dialogue um, at such an important time as they prepare to leave school
0: right I mean I think in in we've t- talked about this uh, as part of the liberal arts endeavor is that you have this space in of time during your academic career in college to really find out who you are and to also think about how you're going to put your values into practice in your life and that this, this major really is is a catalyst for that
1: and I would say too that you know something that you talked to us about at faculty meetings is this idea of the ethical imagination. And one of the things that I like about that is the word imagination. I think that in some way creativity has been sort of co-opted and um, kind of emptied of a lot of its meaning Mm -hmm. or at least its potential um, to really make real change. Um, And so I am excited within the XA major and within the graphic design major too to have the opportunity to cultivate imagination Mm. and give students time and space to think about how things could be otherwise and how they might produce work that would catalyze that. Yeah.
0: Your own work really brings together the sort of very cerebral intellectual (laughs) dimensions with very practical, you know, making. Talk a little bit about navigating the the terrains. So uh,
1: one of the things that I, um, I think is really important for me is that I like to learn. I'm not a really terrific, uh, programmer or, you know, hacker, any of that stuff. Uh, you know, I, I try to learn what I, what I need to, to make my ideas real in some way. But, um, I think that it's really hard for me to imagine by, by, exclusively reading or exclusively writing. I I was trained as a designer. And um, as much as I, I would like to sort of take that identity and sometimes put it away, I can't. That's mm. uh, it's a part of who I am. And so the way that I think through some of the things that I'm worried about or some of the things I'm learning about is by coming up with project ideas. And sometimes those get realized and sometimes they don't. Um, And sometimes they become something else. So, uh, for example, uh, we've been talking about uh, education and how important it is to me. And in my teaching practice, uh, I was teaching graphic design one, two years ago. And I started talking to students about things that would automate some of the activities that we were doing. Because I was doing some research on the automation of design, just very cursory. Like I was just Googling stuff. It wasn't anything deep. Mm -hmm. And we ended up having these conversations and it basically made me think about it enough that I started doing a little bit more serious research on it. And, um, I have a paper coming out this summer in uh, a journal called design and culture, which is a terrific, uh, terrific journal basically about what it means to teach design in an age of automation. Mm -hmm. And, but that all that came out of the classroom. So there's like different, you know, different ways that, ideas get sparked for me. Usually they're oftentimes they're in conversation with students. I think my engagement with students, you know, like talking about Fitbit, you know, like a lot of my work is revolved around the quantified self and what it means to, you know, like whether it's being a quantified professor or whether it's being a quantified, uh, you know, runner or something Mm -hmm. like that. Um, you know, but to have to explain some of these technologies to students or just, I mean, not even explain, you know, I, I I don't even like the idea that, like, I would explain it to them. I think we learn about it together and we kind of experience these ideas together and we respond to these ideas in really different ways. And, you know, that just out of that sort of emerges um, some of the work that I do.
0: Yeah. I mean, so much of that is invisible to us is, you know, fades into the background, as you were saying at the beginning of our conversation and making that more understandable, more more tangible, um, more an uh, possible object of reflection and hopefully imagination. but I mean, some of this is just figuring out what all of the algorithmic you know factors are operating on us in any given moment.
1: absolutely. Um, at the talk I gave at um, the Center for Interdisciplinarity colloquium, uh, I dove in pretty deeply to the hardware inside of a Fitbit. Mm-hmm. And basically, the point of doing that was to talk about the, the network of things, even within what we perceive as sort of a singular artifact. And, you know, to ask students, I mean, this is an activity I haven't done yet, but I maybe should do, is like ask students to read the technical documentation mm-hmm. for the accelerometer inside of Fitbit. And be like what, is, like, what does any of this mean? This mm-hmm. is like crazy.
0: Right, right. I don't understand it. Right, And yet it's, 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 it's on our person and it's measuring every moment of our movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so talk, tell me a little bit about the upcoming projects you're excited about.
1: So um, there's a few things that uh, I have going on right now, um, one of which is, well, okay. So right now I'm sort of, I think, at an inflection point in a lot of my work. Um, the project around um, faculty metrics and um, some other projects around actually the future of dream reading. Mm. Um, both, of, both of those, I think, um, are quite robust already at this point. And I've been thinking more and more about how to take advantage of my positioning here at MSU. And one of the things that I also have been really thinking about is how to transition from the opportunities that my critique opens up to maybe what it means to engage some of those opportunities and still be really thinking seriously about how the design of certain technologies and certain discourses, again, shapes the way we perceive the world and thus the way we participate in it. And so um, I've been working with Dr. Stephanie White from the Global Center for Food Systems Innovation. Um, Stephanie is brilliant, uh, amazing woman whose work in Malawi has Uh, really uh, inspired me. She runs a program called the Frugal Innovation Practicum, which is super awesome. Mm -hmm. Um, And I traveled to Malawi with her this past summer on a funded uh, project through the um, Center for Gender in a global context. And we facilitated a workshop um, amongst various stakeholders within the urban food system in Lilongwe, which is the capital city of Malawi. And I was there sort of mostly to learn. I was kind of like Stephanie's lackey. I was like, Stephanie, whatever you need me to do, just like, I'll do it. But basically what I want to do is I want to start engaging with um, the, what I refer to as sort of like the technological imaginary of the development world Mm -hmm. and of international development, because Mm -hmm. there are certain discourses that sort of dominate. And they, again, shape people's imagination of what their world can look like, particularly when people are incentivized to listen to international development organizations. Mm-hmm. So when someone says, oh, the industrialized food system um, with sort of centralized planning a la, you know, um, grocery stores instead of sort of like distributed informal farmers markets everywhere um, and will give you money to do that, mm-hmm. it changes how those people perceive what their world can can be like in the first place um and so i'm really interested in now looking at sort of the interfaces of international development if you will Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and i by no means know nearly enough about that and that's part of the reason to be working with stephanie is to really be engaging um you know, on the ground with the kind of, with that kind of work. And it's been, it's been super awesome. So like food systems more broadly, um, is something. And I'm also really interested in studying the, the technological imaginary around food systems here as well. So like looking at, you know, like what does every article in wired magazine about food look like? Mm -hmm. What do the design, like, you know, when wired writes about the future of food in 1995 and when they write about the future of food in 2012, like, what do the illustrations look like? Mm-hmm. What kind of language are they using? And like these kind, of, these kind of ideas. So, and, you know, of course, part of the impetus for doing that is we're at the greatest agriculture school in the country. And um, why not?
0: Right, right. right. right? And, and there's so many opportunities for collaboration across the various disciplines. Exactly. I mean, as you're, you're talking about uh, your work, I'm thinking about all the work that's going on um, among our faculty around post-colonial, thinking. Yep. And, you know, this is a new uh, phase of, of um, our space where we have to think through that, where, Absolutely. you know, those colonial practices are alive and well, and they're, you know, at work shaping reality.
1: They are. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think there is a, a, a sort of intersection between the sort of technological imaginary and the sort of the sort of like neo-colonialism of whether it's NGOs or whether it's sort of tech corporations. I mean, just looking at some of the um, emerging agricultural technologies and the way they're sold, what kind of design they use to sell them. Right. You know, like all of those things do exactly what I was talking about right. earlier. And I'm I'm super excited to sort of start down down that path. Um, I'm also. This is a this is a request for collaborators mm-hmm. um, because I have no idea how to do this, but down the line uh, I have this vision for a project about Spotify, uh-huh. and um, basically it's about what happens when we treat music like we treat scholarship in my other in my other work. So like, oh, great. Uh, looking at um, analyzing and maybe pushing back against some of the ways that. Uh, Spotify is incentivized to have certain kinds of music because they are eminently streamable mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to music that challenges or right. maybe isn't so conducive to that format.
0: Right. And there's an enormous amount of um, thinking that's being done right now in the, in the wake of what's happened in New Zealand and the, and the role of uh, YouTube and white supremacy and the way that you know, YouTube feeds up uh, you know, content associated with uh, white supremacy and and the way in which the uh, massacres in in New Zealand were in some ways also designed to feed mm-hmm. that that system.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It reminds me of a project I did a super long time ago. I haven't talked about this in ages. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there was a project um, that my friends from grad school and I did called the YouTube Descrambler, scrambler and it was basically a, a black acrylic box that was maybe like two feet by two feet and it had a, a computer and a projector inside of it and it was on the side of it was an old um crank for like a coffee you know like a yeah. coffee grinder mm-hmm. um and basically we hooked the crank up to the computer through couple of different channels. um, And it would be like playing, there was a projector inside of it and it'd be playing a YouTube video on the wall. And then you could walk up to it and you could crank the old crank and it would push the popular YouTube video out of the way for like a video with, you know, between zero and 10 plays. Oh, very
0: cool. Um, And
1: it was kind of like a, just sort of a metaphor for YouTube's algorithms as a black box. Yeah. And also uh, the way that we're incentivized to see the most Popular and and the way that those sort of work again, like in this in this cycle, you know, like is is academia now this sort of scholarly version of like clickbait, right? You know, so I think all all these things are 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 connected.
0: Yeah, well, I am really grateful for the work that you're doing uh, here at MSU and for the world, and um, it's great to have a chance to talk to you.
1: Likewise, this is great.
0: Thank you. A big thank you to everyone here in the studio today. You can follow more of Zach's work, teaching, and research on his website, which is mediated.space, and on Twitter at Zachary Kaiser. And lastly, I'd like to thank those um, involved in the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast, including our technical producers Dan Trago and Nadav Pace, Green Apple, and our marketing director, producer, Ryan Kilcoin. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast at go.cal.msu.edu slash podcast. I'm Dean Christopher Long, and I'll see you next time on MSU's Liberal Arts Endeavor.